case in recent weeks. I have uh, at least made an announcement reminding us about the availability of the puzzles there in the foyer. You might take note, though, that today's puzzle is a little bit different than the others in that there are two sheets stapled together. So when you try to pick up one, don't be shocked if you actually get a second one, for I went ahead and stapled them together. There is still the same amount in terms of number of puzzles. There's a crossword puzzle as well as a find a word. It's just a little bit lengthier because this one is a review over the book of John. So test your memory and skills over your knowledge of the book of John and see if you can answer those questions that, that relate to this very last puzzle that we'll study before our Bible Bowl. As Brother Roger mentioned in the announcements, we certainly want to remember the Bible Bowl effort this coming Saturday, and I'm certain that Jeff may have some more things to remind us as the week goes on, but it's certainly something that's been worked for for now several weeks, and we're excited about that. We are proud of our youngsters, and we, we know they're going to really be benefited all through life by their knowledge that they've gained in a study of John. And even we who are young at heart also have been encouraged and also lifted up by our study of that same book. And speaking of the book of John, we come today to the 14th lesson in this series of lessons, and only one more remains. We'll look at that tonight as we close our study of John. And throughout the study, we have seen in so dramatic fashion the nature of Christ's divinity, the nature of His deity, the greatness of His work, the mission He had from heaven, and the benefit for all of us. And so it is in these last two lessons, perhaps we'll see all of that raised to a crescendo. It is, if you will, the symphony is reaching its maximum intensity. In fact, as we begin our study this morning, some of the things that can be so wonderful for us to keep in mind, we have already noticed some of the things I've highlighted there upon that slide. We have seen to this point in John chapter 1 through chapter 19 verse 16 the greatness of Christ's presence upon earth. When He left the portals of heaven, came to be that babe born in the manger in Bethlehem, came to be that one who in fact labored here for those 30 years and then began the character of that public ministry. We have seen so dramatically in that three and somewhat over years how He has touched the world to such an extent that it shall never, ever be the same again. We, you and I, are testimonies to that fact 2,000 years later. We still have the utmost confidence in this one, what he came to do and the fact he succeeded. It is in that regard that the title of the lesson this morning is, It is Finished. Taken directly from the lips of our Lord while hanging on the cross in John 19.30. It is with that in mind I would ask you to begin a study of some verses that begin where we left off last Lord's Day morning and proceed on to the next elements of the book of John itself. In fact, you might notice as we left the saga last Sunday, we had noticed that Jesus had come to Gethsemane. While there, we noticed that Judas came with a band of the chief priests and others who were able to visit, and our Savior was arrested. He was bound and led off, if he pleased, to first appear before Annas, and then in the wee hours of the morning also before Caiaphas. As our Savior appeared in preliminary trials before them, He was treated unjustly and quite often inhumanely. Here was one who had not yet been sentenced, and yet He was nonetheless, in effect, treated very despicably and treated very sorrowfully. We might remember that the verdict handed down by the meeting at the 
trial before Caiaphas was, this man is guilty. The Sanhedrin rendered that rather terrible verdict, and thus off toward Pilate they led him. They needed now the execution right, the execution sentence to be carried out, for they were unable to do that by Roman law. When he was brought before Pilate, we well remember Pilate on more than one occasion said, I find no fault in him. Pilate was unable to find him guilty of what they accused, guilty of any other crime against the Roman state. And yet, Pilate, we might remember, had him scourged, hoping that by scourging him, they would in fact be willing to allow him to be released. However, that was not to be. In addition to scourging him, when Pilate thus brought him forth and said, Behold the man! They still, prompted by the chief priests and prompted by the other religious leaders, as they brought that crowd into a frenzied response, they cried, Crucify him! Crucify him! It is to be noted then that Pilate washed his hands of the matter in a symbolic fashion and thus released Barabbas and turned Jesus over to this mob of Jews and said, You do with him because his blood is on your hands. It is to be noted, of course, in all of that. That was the close of our lesson last time. Let's pick up the story as it continues now. In John the 19th chapter, beginning in verse number 17, we have the statement of the continuance of where we left off. We can easily see now that the character of crucifixion is the sentence the Jews desired and Pilate was going to allow it to happen, even though he found no fault in the man. Thus, the cross already fashioned. They provide Jesus with the opportunity, I should say, to proceed to that place of crucifixion. We notice that Simon is compelled to assist Jesus in bearing the cross. Here was a man of Cyrene who in fact is prompted, who is almost, if you will, compelled to assist Jesus to carry the cross to the place called Golgotha. It is to be interestingly noted that this place called Golgotha is the more frequent place as it's mentioned in the Scriptures. When they arrive at Golgotha, maybe we ought to make note. Quite often you and I will refer to Calvary. And it is interesting, Calvary is a Latin word, or at least it comes from Latin. The Latin word is Calvaria, and it also has reference to a skull. Notice that the actual Aramaic or Hebrew word is Golgotha, and it's the one that the sacred writers use more frequently. Our Savior came to the place of the skull. As we contemplate what that must have been, it is somewhat a wonderment to us as to specifically what that involved. Did it look like perhaps a hillock that was shaped like a skull? Was it the call that because that was the common place of crucifixion? It's not quite clear, but this much we know. When our Savior came there, He came not alone because there were two thieves crucified with Him. The Lord was in the midst and there was a thief on each side. Our Lord here was brought to an exceedingly low estate, wasn't He? put to death between two recognized criminals. And yet he was the Son of God, perfect in every regard, guileless in every fashion. No guile was found in his mouth, First Peter 2, 22 and following. And here was this one crucified between thieves. As our Savior on that occasion was thus crucified, we notice that nails were employed to affix him to the cross. 
Yes, indeed, nails. There were times that we are told from history that they were tied to the cross, but not our Savior. Nails in His hands, nails in His feet. Later on, as we shall study in the lesson tonight, He will in fact urge Thomas to put His fingers into those nail prints and His hand in His side. Our Savior endured all the excruciating pain of having nails driven into His hands as well as into His feet. May we never forget that He did that for you and for me. May we never forget that on that dark day at Golgotha, it wasn't just thieves that were crucified. This was the incarnate God of heaven in the form of the Son. He had taken the form of human flesh, and in that flesh He gave His life. Interestingly enough, when Christ was placed upon that cross, there was a placard, an insignia, if you please, that was placed a title on that cross above the Savior's head. And interestingly enough, if you're reading in the King James translation, it's in all capital letters. It simply reads as follows. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Amazing, isn't it? Here was Pilate, who in fact had found no fault in him, and yet when he made a placard, a title, an insignia, it made this statement, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The Jews were somewhat upset by that statement, and they said, don't put that on there, rather put that he said, I am King of the Jews. It is to be noted, though, that Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. This was the king of all glory and the king of all time. Later, the New Testament writers in 1 Timothy 6.15, Revelation 17.14, Revelation 19.16, all affirm, King of kings and Lord of lords is He. He was, in fact, the great Son of God, King indeed. In fact, as we recognize the continuance of the matter, while the Savior was on the cross, the soldiers were interested in His garments. Some of them, they were able to divide amongst themselves. There was, however, one garment that had no seam. They were unwilling to rip it up or to, in fact, make it into parts, and so they cast lots for that one. All of this was foretold in Old Testament glory. The prophets had foretold that they would do this. God had written history before it actually came to pass. As you reach one of the last statements upon that slide, Matthew enters in and gives us one statement that John chooses not to record. It's a statement that on one initial occasion, the crowd offered the Savior. You might notice wine mingled with gall, but the Lord would not take it. On that occasion, He refused the offer. Why? Because that was somewhat of a painkiller. The Lord refused every regard not to endure all of the pain and the anguish and the suffering that was rightly accordance to the sins of the human family. The Lord took no painkillers. Today, when you and I go to a dentist or a doctor, we often ask for that which will dull the pain, dull our senses so that we will not experience the excruciating pain. The Lord endured all that Golgotha had to offer. He took every bit of it. With his rejection of that, the hours upon the cross passed by. Three hours passed, and since the crucifixion began at about 9 a.m., that brings us to the noonday hour. After three hours upon the cross, we now notice that things become dark. 
in a miraculous way for three stretching hours from 12 noon till 3 p.m. Darkness covered the land. Is it not a remembrance of the sadness of the hour, what the human family was doing? God covered over the sun. He, in fact, made things dark so that perhaps individuals could recognize the momentous thing that was taking place. With the darkness of the hours past, one of the last statements that the Lord made on the cross as He looked below Him, He saw His mother Mary standing there and He committed her care unto John the Apostle. Woman, behold thy son. To John, He said, Behold thy mother. John 19, 25. We quickly noticed that as the hours had passed on the cross, severe dehydration, no doubt, had begun to set in. Remember, he had already lost a great amount of blood with the scourging of the previous uh, of, of the early morning, with the nature of the anxiety and the trauma of having the nails driven into his hands and his feet. And after all, once one was suspended upon that cross, breathing was a difficult matter. With your arms outstretched like this for hours upon end and your feet crossed over and suspended on the nail, the only way to breathe was to use your leg muscles and push yourself up so that the chest cavity could enlarge enough to inhale air. And hence, with each motion of pushing upward, your back already laced open due to the scourging was rubbing against that old wooden cross. And what's more, with each breath upward, your lungs were becoming greater and greater in lack of moisture. We noticed that on this particular occasion, one other offer was made to the Savior. They offered him vinegar on a sponge, and they lifted it up to him with hyssop, and the Lord took of it. And it's on that occasion that he made the statement, It is finished. The last words that the Lord uttered, he gave up the ghost, and he died. It is finished. As we contemplate the significance of that point, May we finish the actual record of the history and then revisit maybe the greatness of that little sentence. Notice that with the Savior now dead, the Sabbath day drew very near. This was again late in the afternoon on the day before the Sabbath began. The Sabbath began at 6 p.m., the Hebrews reckoning time from evening till morning. And hence, as the Lord died at 3 p.m., it was only three hours between when the Savior passed away and when the Sabbath began. In that three hours' time, we learned that the Jews were rather interested in having those bodies off the crosses so that they would not be on there for the Sabbath. With that said, it is interesting that the Jews thus requested to have the legs broken. For clearly, with the legs broken, you couldn't push yourself up and you would soon die from asphyxiation. You'd smother in your own character being unable to breathe. That said, they came to the two thieves, broke their legs. They came to the Savior, however, and noticed the Roman soldier did that he was already dead. However, it was perhaps a matter of confirming it to himself. He used that soldier and thrust it into the side of our Savior, and forthwith came forth blood and water, John 19.34. That helps us to appreciate that indeed the Savior had already passed away by that time. With that noted, Joseph of Arimathea, as well as Nicodemus, inquire for the body of the Savior so that they could at least give it a decent burial. They make a hasty preparation, place it into a tomb wherein never a man had been lain. 
our Savior was able to be buried in a new tomb that was prophesied in Isaiah 53. And might it also be something that helps us see then that the women now begin to play a role. For with that hasty preparation, the Scriptures give us no information about the Sabbath. Rather, the next element comes to us on Sunday morning. The first day of the week, the women come early to the tomb. The Scripture, especially Mark, informs us it was exceedingly early, a bit before dawn. As they come, the idea was to make a more thorough preparation and give Jesus a more decent and proper burial. As they come, are they not shocked? When they discover the stone was rolled away from the sepulcher's door, when the women recognize then that the body is not there, they truly are beside themselves in a sense. They, in fact, Mary runs to tell the apostles that the body isn't there. They are not aware of what has happened, at least yet. Later, however, on that particular day, the angel shortly thereafter appeared to the other of the women, and they informed them that he has risen. Jesus shortly appears to Mary herself, and she comes to recognize the same. For at first, she mistakes Jesus, thinking he's the gardener of the area. But then she also recognizes that the Lord has risen. And with that, that brings to a conclusion the actual textual study of our lesson this morning. We'll pick up the story there tonight, but what might be some things that you and I can take from this to put in mind and help us reflect on the saga, the story that has now transpired before us? Might I submit to you, they might well be the following. First of all, the opening lesson. Ponder with me the humiliation of the crucifixion. First of all, it wasn't that unusual for crucifixion to be used by Romans. They often put individuals to death by that rather humiliating and inhuman manner of crucifixion. The Romans were a cruel people. But I might add to our thinking that in the case of Christ, it was especially humiliating. For notice with me some of the following points, some of the following things that might well be stated. First... In the case of the Lord, there was the opportunity to, in fact, crucify Barabbas and release the Christ. But it worked out just the opposite. Here was a thief, what's more, an insurrectionist and a one guilty of sedition, who in fact had a part to play in murder, and yet he was released, and Jesus was crucified. On top of that, as we noted earlier, Jesus was crucified not by himself, but rather between thieves. All the while, the previous night, the matter and Pilate having found no fault in him, and yet it was this one who was innocent who was now being put to death. This study of crucifixion perhaps quickly reminds us to ask questions about ourselves today. How do you and I sometimes react when things don't go our way? When things happen... When things come to pass in your life and mine, in hindsight, maybe they're rather trivial. Perhaps they're rather insignificant, and yet it causes us great internal turmoil, great difficulty and anxiety of mind. Friend, what did Jesus endure? What humiliation did he take? In Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, we read these words, "...let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus." 
who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's reading through verse 11 of that same chapter. In the Lord's humiliation, He nonetheless became the greatest of all. Maybe you and I should recognize that when things happen, we ought to have the mind in us that was in Christ. And to appreciate the fact that as we labor here upon earth, it's not about making a name for me. It's about glorifying God. And it's about doing His will. And that's what the Savior was all about, wasn't it? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Perhaps also in the second place, note the quickness, the rapidity, if you please, of the Lord's death. We are told from matters of history that it wasn't unusual for a person to be able to live for days on that cross. The Lord died in six hours, my friend. Six hours, that's all it took. Now, as we think about the agony of the moment and the terrible anguish that He bore, that still seems like a long time, but compared to days, that isn't that long. What prompted the Lord's sudden and quick death? No doubt the scourging had a role to play in it. But might I submit to you that we mustn't forget one other thought. Matthew's account explains it a bit more thoroughly. In Matthew 27 verse 46, Jesus on that occasion, in perhaps the second to the last thing He uttered on the cross, He said, Eli, Eli, la, basa, thakdenai. Now that, of course, is an Aramaic phrase. It means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Savior, you see, was not just dying for crimes He had committed, which the thieves were. He wasn't simply dying being an affront to society, being something that had caused the case of the Caesar to be upset. The Lord was dying because of your sins and mine. He was carrying upon His very person the nature of all sins of every person who had ever lived. Could that have been the prompting thing for His sudden and quick death? Could that have been a part of it? The greatness of that moment? The momentous character of that hour? It would seem from that phrase as well as both Old Testament prophecy and New Testament statements that that was exactly something to do with it. Oh, how much He bore for us. But then in the third place, not only the quickness and not only the humiliation, perhaps also note with me in passing that Jesus is our Passover. We know from Old Testament significance how important the Passover idea was. On that night, the children of Israel came out of Egyptian bondage. The Lord had specifically given them instruction, you take a lamb. And later, as he would affirm, you gather it up on the tenth day of the month, on the fourteenth day, you slaughter it, you dip a bunch of hyssop in the blood and put it on the lentils and on the doorposts. And the person who is in the house, the death angel will pass by, and that person will be saved. The Lord had said on that occasion, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The Jews, of course, came to appreciate the greatness of that Passover. Jesus, my friend, is our Passover. 
that blood that he shed at Calvary, it can still be said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. If we are not covered in the blood of the Christ, we do not have any hope of being passed over with the character of the death angel. We have no hope of missing the terribleness of hell. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Paul expressly said, Christ is our Passover. He offered the Passover sacrifice. He was the Passover sacrifice. Without availability of His blood, you and I stand hopeless. Notice, if you would, in Hebrews 1 verse 3 as well as Hebrews 10 verse 12, it is there said for us very clearly that when He had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, He sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till His enemies be made His footstool. Christ is now seated in royal majesty, in regal splendor at the right hand of God, and His blood is there for all who will make avail of it by obedience to the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in that act of baptism that we contact His blood. And in that act, His blood will cleanse us from sin. And when God sees the blood, He will pass over us with the reign of the wrath of Him in regard to eternity. Maybe in the third place, or rather in the fourth place, we come to that statement now in John 19, verse 30. Very simple, very direct, very straightforward. The Lord, upon taking that vinegar, then made the statement, It is finished. What was it that was finished? The Lord didn't have reference to His physical life. That was obvious. Once He was dead, it was clear that that was the case. The Lord had reference to something far more profound and far more significant. It was, in fact, the nature of the plan for human redemption. It is finished. In the very beginning of time, we might well remember that God, when Adam and Eve chose to violate His will and sin, on that occasion in Genesis 3.15, God had said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Thou, speaking to the devil, shalt bruise his heel, he shall bruise thy head. Notice, Satan was bruising the Lord's heel. Jesus was dying in the flesh. It was a minor wound, if you please. But in this act, Jesus was crushing forever the devil's power. For you see, by the fact that He lived and died without sin, He could be that perfect sacrifice for all human sin, and that He was. He was now dying on the cross for you, for me, for every person who ever lived. And when He said, It is finished, the finality of the plan for human redemption was now a real thing. Peter and the others could stand forth on Pentecost being prompted by the Holy Spirit and preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Furthermore, His coronation to glory after having ascended to the Father. And that Peter did in every regard in Acts 2, verses 14 through 36. The plan for human redemption was now finished. It was sealed. It could now be preached in fullness, and all could thus be saved from sin by it. Might we also remember in 1 John 3, verse 8, there, the beloved Apostle John, who was here standing at the very foot of the cross, could he not say, for this purpose he was manifested that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And furthermore, for this purpose came he forth, that he might bring to naught the works of the devil. The devil no longer had the great power that he had had in the past. Christ shackled him. 
it is finished. Human redemption can now take place. But then in the final place, our fifth lesson of the day, the resurrection is a reality. Oh, how often it could well be that the human family has stood at a position in life, maybe in the cemetery after having placed in the bosom of earth the remains of a dear loved one, one who is in fact a cherished friend or perhaps a very dear person in life, and you sit there with tears streaming down your face, and you think, is there life after death? Is there anything beyond this? Will I ever see him or her again? With great glory and tremendous power, the resurrection of Jesus says, absolutely. Notice that on that Sunday morning, though the Lord's body had been placed in the tomb, the women came and the body wasn't there. It had come forth from that tomb. Peter will stand forth on the day of Pentecost and preach, Death could not hold him. By the power of God, up from the grave he arose, and just as surely as he did, so too will we. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 24. Death isn't the end. Resurrection is a real thing. In fact, the nature of that resurrection quickly points to us to the fact that Peter and John and the other apostles soon not only believed it, but believed it with all their being and they devoted the rest of their life to preaching it. Preaching the resurrection is a reality. Oh, it's true, isn't it, that there are many materialists in the world today who say the resurrection's laughable. You have to be rather imbecilic to believe in a resurrection. And yet, with all the straight-facedness of eternity, you and I can open the Bible and say, friend, the resurrection is real. In fact, despite the fact you don't believe it, you too are going to be resurrected, and you're going to stand before God in judgment and give answer for what you have or have not done in life. All of us will, y'all. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift, 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Those five lessons, I think, have prompted us to conclude our lesson in this way this morning. We have seen yet one more record of events in the book of John. We have seen the nature of what took place on the cross and in the short time thereafter. And tonight as we finish the book, we will notice the way that Jesus interacted with others after He was resurrected and the kinds of things that He had to say and the way He changed their life. I might submit this morning that he can also change lives today. No matter what may have been the cause and the way we have lived, when we commit ourselves to the Master by faithfully obeying, obeying His will, we are not the same person we once was. We're clean. We're washed. We're sanctified. We're justified. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 10 and 11. And furthermore, we are a person whose name is written in the honor roll of life. That book of life that we read of in the book of Revelation. This morning, are you a Christian? Notice what Jesus did for you. He took your place at Golgotha. You should have been there. I should have been there. But yet He was there for us. And He took the excruciating anguish and pain for you and for me. He asks, in fact, He demands that for you to be saved, you must submit your life to Him. Believe in Him as the Son of God. Believe Him to be who He said He was. That is commanded in Mark 16, 16. But not only believe, you need to repent of your sins. They are what nailed Him to the cross in essence and in a figurative way. 
you need to repent of them, Luke 13, 5. Furthermore, you need to confess in an audible way that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Acts 8, 37. And then be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. You aren't baptized as an open show of the fact you're already saved. You are baptized to contact His blood, and in that contact, God will say, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. If you haven't done that, why not today? Why delay? Why put it off? Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You may never have another opportunity. That quote from Proverbs 27.1 only points us to this fact. If you have been a Christian, but you really no longer are, you aren't faithful. Perhaps you have absented yourselves the services. Maybe you have said things in public. You've been places you ought not have been. You've done things that really have disgraced the church and all that the Lord stands for. If others know about that, you need to have them appreciate the fact you're repenting. Make a statement in public to them of your sorrow. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. To read 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Today, if we could pray upon your behalf, we'd be happy to do that. If in any way there's a need that you have in a spiritual way in your life, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement, and it's an opportune time to let that be known in a public way. If we could be of help to you, won't you let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?